right. Well, if you've ever flown in an airplane, they give, well, if you've never flown in an airplane, they give this talk at the beginning of every flight. And it doesn't matter if you're making the 25 minute puddle jump from Evansville to Louisville or Cincinnati, or if you're doing the 18 hours, you guys, 18 hours, from Munich to Detroit, where you go over the top of the earth because that's shorter. <gasps> they give this speech at the beginning and they, back in my day, some of you guys remember this, uh, they would actually recite it. It wasn't a recording, it wasn't a movie. The person would say it and the person would read off the thing and they'd read it really quick. And there was one part of it where they would say, if the whole cabin loses pressure, Oxygen masks will fall from the ceiling automatically. And they never explained how that could happen. And I remember being a kid, I flew, I flew in an airplane uh, the day after the Challenger exploded. And I was like seventh grade. And, and all I could think was, if they can't make that thing work, how is this airplane ever gonna fly? I was terrified. But, um, so they say the mask is going to fall down from the, the, the ceiling. And if you are a parent with small children, put your mask on first. And then help your child. And so, you know, I'm going to the Bahamas, flying down to the Bahamas. The Challenger exploded and I'm looking at my mom like she's going to put hers on first. And then I have to get mine. Fast forward years later, when I made the uh, Munich to Detroit over the top of the earth, and I had a small child with me, and they say that, and I thought, okay, that totally makes sense, because Davo's nine months old. He's not going to be able to put his mask on, and if I fiddle with his mask <gasps> and croak, that's going to hurt both of us. It's not going to help him. The best way to help him is for me to worry about my mask. And then worry about Cindy getting her mask on because I know she'll be putting Davo's mask on and not her own. No, you're like, nope, I'm putting my mask on first. So I say all that to say everything I'm going to talk about today. I know there's a whole lot of times that you read the Gospels and you learn about Jesus and you really care about other people. And, I mean, Jesus said the, the greatest, love, greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as your... Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But everything I'm going to say today, you've got to put your own mask on first. It says, uh, Paul says in Romans that when it comes to saying who is going to go to heaven and who is going to go to hell... That you should not say that. You should not decide that. Because that, bring, that either exalts yourself above Jesus as a judge. Or it brings Jesus down to your level to be a judge like you. And so we're going to talk a whole bunch about heaven and hell. And what happens after you die today. And it's super easy to turn all of this into a 
and to look at other people and be like, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this because he's on his way to hell. And you just put the mask on him before you put it on yourself. But so-and-so that you're thinking of, it would be better for him, and he is more likely to live if you put the mask on yourself first. Get what I'm saying? Like metaphorically speaking, get yourself walking the walk with the Lord the right way first, and then he will see that and you'll be able to help him. So, with that, we have a whole little collection of readings, and um, we're just going to read through these questions. You'll see they do all fit, and then it's just so perfect, you guys, how there's just one big chunk of Scripture that goes with all of these in, in a great way. So we're starting at question number 28, which is, what happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith. They will be cast out for the presence of God into hell to be justly punished forever. That's terrible. So turn the page. Because that number 28 exists to drive you to number 29. How can we be saved? How can we, how can we not make that happen? Only by faith in Jesus Christ and in his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. This is for kids, and they put that word in there. <laughs> uh, substitute, right? Substitute spot. He took your place. He did it for you. He's a sub. His sub atoning death on the cross. Question number 30. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Okay, so if that's the only way I get saved from hell... I want to know what it is, the right thing, right? What is faith in Jesus Christ? Receiving and resting on Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the gospel. The real Jesus. The real, real biblical Jesus. Question 31. You might fall out of your chair. It's the longest answer in the whole book. Oh my goodness. Question 31. What do we believe... By true faith. Okay, believe in Jesus, but what, what else do we believe? What does that all mean? We believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So, if you're paying attention, that's the Apostles' Creed. All they didn't even introduce it. <laughs> they kind of slip it in there like, here it is. That is just a great Bible study to do. Just that alone. To go through every one of those lines and to unpack what that, what that is and what that means and what all those lines mean. Um, I think I preached through it like four years ago. Because I, I found notes about it. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Question 32. 
What do justification and sanctification mean? Justification means our declared righteousness before God. Sanctification means our gradual growing righteousness. Justification and sanctification. Like I said, we're going to read all these questions and we're going to talk about it. We got a lot to cover, don't we? Question number 33. Should those who have faith in Christ seek their salvation through their own works or anywhere else? How do you like this? This is a loaded Protestant question, isn't it? (laughs) No! Everything necessary to salvation is found in Christ. Question 34. Since we are redeemed by grace alone, through Christ alone, must we still do good works and obey God's word? If it's all by, by faith and by grace, do we need to do anything? Yes, so that our lives may show love and gratitude to God, so that by our godly behavior, others may be won to Christ. Then the last question for today, question 35, since we are redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, where does faith come from? Is it one of our own works? And the answer is it comes from the Holy Spirit. So we have just been taken through from uh, 27, no, 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 28, 28 to 35 this week. We have been taken through the whole heaven and hell, judgment, salvation. And then once you have salvation, how do you live? And what do you do? And what's really cool as you might notice, the very, this ends part two of this whole little section. And then it's all downhill, hill, downhill after this. So, anyway, let's talk about these things. There is a whole denomination called Unitarian Universalist that teaches that God loves everybody so much that he couldn't send anybody to hell. And so there's no hell. A uh, derivative of this is that only the devil goes to hell because we all know the devil's bad, but all people go to heaven. There's a practical way this plays out in the church, in Christianity, where pretty much at a funeral, everybody's going to heaven. When you're at a funeral and you're talking about the person that died or you're talking about other people that are there, there's just this sentiment that everybody's going to heaven. And I want to say that's okay. And here's why. And this is why some of this sermon is going to sound a little coarse and I want to, I want to really let you guys know where I am on this. <laughs> but some of these things, if you thought about them in their reality... And in the depths of where they are, I wouldn't even be able to leave my house. And I would just cry. Because hell is very real. And I get a lot of reassurance. And I get a lot of comfort from Paul's words in Romans that say, don't say who is going to go to heaven and who is going to go to hell. Because you don't know about that other person. So remember the whole oxygen mask thing? If I put the oxygen mask on me while the airplane's careening into the Atlantic Ocean, I've got that mask on. I know I've got the mask on and I can breathe. 
right? I don't know about anybody else on the plane. I don't know. Uh, I have a friend, and he worked as a hospice chaplain, and he had all of these stories. He had numerous stories of people. He would be at their bedside, and they would be dying, screaming in terror. They would come back to life for a second and have a pulse, and he would preach the gospel to their body as it had a pulse but otherwise didn't respond. And then they would die a second time just with absolute peace and relief. Now, did that person in the moment of their death get saved? I I hope they did. I hope something really great happened in that last minute. And the thing is, we're talking about stuff that there is no way we can know. There's no way we can, we can know the depth of transformation that happens to somebody on their deathbed. Same thing goes for, I've talked to people in their 60s that the completion of all of their Bible knowledge they got in Sunday school as a kid. Or everything they know about Jesus they got from vacation Bible school 50 years ago. And they cling on to that. And they believe it. Are they going off into foreign missions? No. Are they building churches and having seminaries named after them? No. But there's something in their heart and soul that the Holy Spirit has been doing for 50 years since vacation Bible school. Okay? So, that's why I say it's okay at a funeral to have a mood that everybody just really show grace to everybody that's there. But we're not at a funeral today. (laughs) So my goal is not to scare you out of hell into heaven. Uh, That might be the means that the Holy Spirit uses, but I I hope you've been more sensitive to other means. But hell is real. And there are too many things in the scriptures to talk about hell for us to have any attitude that, you know, hell, it, I mean, it's bad, but it, it's not really a thing. Or Jesus doesn't send people there. Okay, that's, in the words of my friend, who is a, an awesome missionary guy, it's okay for you to believe that, but that's not what the Bible says. So, let's, let's believe what fits with what the Bible says. Okay? So, when people die... They go somewhere. Your your spirit and your soul, um, we've changed our words for it throughout history, but there's something about you that isn't your flesh and blood you. But the Apostle Paul says that it's recognizable in heaven. The Apostle John says that you can tell what nationality people are in heaven. Whoa. So I don't know if they're going to call it German-Irish, but whatever I look like, I will still look German-Irish and be recognizable in heaven, which is pretty wild. We'll we'll be able to recognize people in heaven. So that, that thing, our spirit, lives. And... There's another parable that Jesus gives where what we have right now gets planted and dies so that something else can live. 
The Apostle Paul talks about how our heavenly body is as different from this human body that you see as a seed is from a plant. So we're recognizable. You'll be able to tell what kind of culture I grew up in. But I'm going to look so completely different as different from one of those little helicopter seeds that fill up your gutters. Look from a tree. Wow. But not everyone will be there. So we're going to be at the end of Matthew 24 today, and then we're going to go all the way through Matthew 25. And in the Old Testament, they talked about after you died... There, there are some places in Psalms where they talk about this. Um, there's some other quotations by David where he talks about this. Where after you die, how can you worship God? You can't. Lord, you won't be able to receive my worship from the grave. And it's, it's kind of talking about after you're dead, it's rest. It's this whole thing, as far as you're concerned, is over. But there are parts of the Old Testament where they talk about resurrection from the dead and dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. David, David talks about that too. So it didn't just start with Jesus. There, there's talk of, of death and not participating in this world. And there's talk of being with God forever. They... Um, the early early Jewish rabbis, they thought, and I mean, they, I don't know that they're wrong, uh, that the tabernacle, the whole tabernacle, holy of holies, the the table of showbread, the outer court, all of that, that that was a map, and that actually that structure was a a rough draft of a structure in heaven that actually exists with God's throne room and all of that, and the court of the Gentiles, and da da da. And um, that that was a real thing. So they, they taught that, that that would be what the afterlife was like. was like we would all be in the temple. And some people wouldn't. There's an outside of the temple where you're not allowed. And, and you don't want to be there, right? All right, so Jesus, he teaches in this Matthew 24, verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at their proper time? We have just gotten the Sullivans. We have just gotten to a momentous point where we can leave our kids home alone because they're all getting so big and old. And we like to come home and look at the house and see the dog running around and the cat running around. We don't even have a dog and a cat. And see the whole place filled with shaving cream flying down the stairs and just the whole house berserk, right? How would you, you know, you come home to that. Whoa! This is the same kind of parable Jesus is telling. Who is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. Like, you know, I left, I put you over everything, and you're taking great care of it. You are in charge of everything. But if that wicked servant says, my master is delayed 
He begins to beat his fellow servants. And he eats and drinks with drunkards. Hey, y'all, my mom's out of town. The house is open. Let's party. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know. And he will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The majority of times when Jesus talks about hell, he uses this phrase. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. I had a professor in college, and it was the most uncomfortable thing in the whole world. Whenever he would get to this, he would grit his teeth together, and he would grind them, and it would squeak through the whole room. And everybody in the room, it was like uh, fingernails on chalkboard. And uh, I'm so thankful for him that he did that, because that has... That has permanently impressed on me how awful hell is. That it's a place where there's just weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you just, it's just so, you know, have you ever been so happy that you just had to yell? Or like, look, I just did it. You can't help but you put your hands up in the air. And you're just, yeah, and, it, and it's, a, it's an uncontrollable cheer or a yes. Um, I've been in places where over here were two people having this very serious conversation. And over here, some person is casually watching the basketball game. And so-and-so scores. Yeah! And this person just erupts. And they're, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, they're trying to keep cool. These people are having a serious conversation. They cannot resist. It's so... Yes, it's so great. Hell is so awful that you just clench your... Like the people there are grinding their teeth together in despair and sadness and pain and weeping. I, I was able to go to a funeral in Central Asia and part of the way their rules work and their customs is um, you really want to let everybody possible know that you are sad that this person died. And so they went around the apartment complex and they get all the, all the, the women that are home that aren't at work and, and aren't doing anything. And they all come and they all get ready. And when they brought this guy out of the house, there was a third story, and they were going to carry his body down the stairs, three, three flights of stairs. And we're all standing around in the courtyard, and I'm kind of like, I don't know how this goes. I don't know what happens. And we see all the ladies go in up there, and my friend says they're about ready to bring him out. And when they brought him out, these women just started, just shouting and wailing, crying. And, I mean, they were, they were in the, I mean, they probably knew who he was. I suspect they, some of them may have been cousins or nieces or distant. Some of them didn't know this guy at all. But you knew when they came out because their crying is representing that they don't want him to leave. 
that they don't want him to go and be buried and, and be dead. And so the bigger that, you know, I mean, we do the same thing in America, right? There were so many people at that guy's funeral. The line went out the door and all the way down the street. We're impressed by that line. In Central Asia, they're impressed by how loud the wailing and the screaming is from the third floor of the building echoing all over. And it was haunting. And it was just uh, chilling to me of, oh, whoa. So if Jesus talks like that about a place, for one, it's dangerous for us to say that that place isn't real. If Jesus takes it so seriously that he would mention it over and over and over again, right? And it's also very serious that we would not treat it flippantly like, oh yeah, it exists, but God doesn't send anybody there. And then again, just so that we can be able to function, maybe this will be the last time I'll say this. Worry about your own oxygen mask. Don't worry about who is going to go to hell and who is going to go to heaven. Because if you contemplate hell, as soon as you start thinking about other people, it's just, it's absolutely devastating. It's better instead to think of what Jesus has saved you from. So, the question, how can we be saved? What is faith in Jesus Christ? And what do we believe by true faith? We believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that He came as a man, and that He died a real death. He was not in a coma. He was not unconscious. Um, They embalmed Him. His body was so dead that they, well, okay, um, they did stuff to his body and packed 75 pounds of salt and spices and, and seasonings and smelly stuff and perfumes into his dead carcass. Okay, if I could just be that gross. He was dead. But on Easter morning... All of those wounds, all of those injuries, all of the, all of the beating on his back, the, the cuts in his head from the crown of thorns, the only thing that was left were, it says uh, that he showed them his scars, and we pretty much think that those are the scars on his hands and his feet and his side, but not his back and not his head. In Isaiah, it said that he would be beaten so bad you wouldn't even know if he was a man. You just, you, you'd be unrecognizable. But on Easter morning, he is healed and he is so uh, not gruesome, not horrible, not scary looking that Mary would run and fall at his feet and grab onto him. He is so attractive and so desirable on Easter morning. He is so healed and restored and remade. And so we believe that. And it says in Ephesians, when you believe that, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are are stamped with the Holy Spirit. You are wrapped Uh, Remember the whole pickle thing? You are dipped and soaked and left to sit for several years so that it can permeate all of you with the Holy Spirit. 
when you believe that. And so just as vinegar and sugar affect a cucumber so that it is never the same and it is a delicious pickle, you are changed. When you believe, wow, Jesus really did die for my sin and rise from the dead, you are changed. So justification and sanctification are really big words. And gosh, you don't need to know what they are to be saved. But sometimes it's really encouraging to know. It basically means that when God looks at you, you are all right. You don't appear before God in fear. You don't show up in front of God afraid. Because you're made right. But then Jesus gives these parables. And these parables are like, look, here it is. This is what my life in you, my Holy Spirit living in you will bring about. And this is what it's going to be like at the end of the world. This is what's going to happen. This is Matthew 25. The kingdom of heaven, it'll be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take any oil with them. But the wise took oil in their lamps, and the bridegroom was delayed. They all became drowsy. All ten of them became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! (gasps) All those virgins rose up. They trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil! Our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there won't be enough for all of us, go to the dealers and buy your own oil. And while they were going to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Those that were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other ladies came also and they said, Lord, open up to us, open up. And he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is a real thing that happened in Jesus' day. Sometimes it even happens today where a man in Palestine will tell his fiancée, I am going to come and get you pretty soon. Get ready. (gasps) That's it? The wedding's about to happen? Yes! And she gets her girlfriends together, and they all keep her company while she's waiting. And they might wait for days. And they might wait for days. And so, all right, I'm going to let you guys in. I didn't tell her I was going to do this. I'm going to let you guys in on a game that my wife and I play. It's a super secret game. It's called Shove the Coat Hanger Under the Sheets on Your Side of the Bed. And if I'm, if I'm a stinker and I get on her nerves in a fun way, this will probably happen tonight now that I've reminded her of it. I come to bed to lie down. I pull over my blankets and I lay down. Oh, ah, there's what? And my side of the bed is full of plastic cone hangers. <laughs> and they're like under the fitted sheet. Like she worked at this. She didn't, they, look, you admit it. And you do it to me more than I do it to you. Can I say that too? Yes? Okay. <clears throat> that, is a, that is a prank in a game that we play. And it is fun. 
I mean, considering I get coat hangers in my back. So a fun game to play in Palestine between a young man who's about to find his, you know, go get married to his bride and the bride is the guys actually do try to catch their soon-to-be brides and the bridal party off guard. It's a game. And the women don't want to lose the game. And so they will watch. And they might take shifts at night. You know, you, you got a girl and all of her girlfriends. I mean, basically, it's the bride and the bridesmaids, right? And they'll set a bridemaid, a, one of the bridesmaids up to keep watch. Because when the groom comes, so in Jesus' day, um, you would not go out at night without a lamp. So they don't have street lights. They don't have electricity. Um, it, you just, you wouldn't. That, it would be dangerous. Um, the only reason you would be outside at night without a lamp is if you're doing something bad that you shouldn't be doing. So it would not be honorable to go out without oil or without a lamp. And so when the bridegroom comes, sort of the, um, the way that they would make it a little bit easier on these ladies that this lady that's about ready to get married is they would send a herald ahead of them and he would say here comes the bridegroom here comes the bridegroom the bridegroom's coming and they would deliberately take the most obnoxious route through the city it says uh, rabbis are encouraged to leave the study of the law to join a bridal procession that's how important Marriage is to God. That you can leave the study of the Torah if it means you can join in behind this guy yelling, the bridegroom's coming. And so it's, it's fun and you can just see it in this. It's fun for the bridegroom to show up with the whole crowd of everybody from the neighborhood at two o'clock in the morning and watch all the bridesmaids wake up like, huh, huh, huh. And have their makeup messed up and their bedhead, and they're all caught off guard, right? That's the game. And then they, everybody laughs and they go in and they celebrate the wedding for a week. And it's a week of partying. But if you're not in that entourage behind the guy that said, Here comes the bridegroom, they don't allow wedding crashers. If you weren't a part of that crowd, you don't get to come and party. And so if you know your next door neighbor is about ready to go, you're like, dude, will you tell me when, when you are getting ready to go get your wife, will you tell me because I want to party? And that guy, depending on how much of a sneaky guy he is, he might be like, hey, you better just pay attention. Or he might be like, all right, I'll get you, I'll get you. And that's how the party goes. And then they go and they celebrate and they call the, the bride and the groom, the prince and the princess, and everybody comes and brings them gifts. You don't have a honeymoon. You have a, a stay here and party all week and everybody brings you stuff all week long. Wow. We should have done that. <laughs> Jesus is saying that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. There's going to be a guy, and he's going to say, The bridegroom is coming. Get ready. It's John the Baptist, right? There's one coming, and I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes, but he's coming. Come on. Come with me. 
And Jesus is saying, you're the bride and you're waiting. And what do you want to do? You want to get as many people around you as you can that are going to help you wait and watch. And if you're going to have people around you that are going to slack off and help you fall asleep and help you miss it, you don't want to be around those people. Because you don't want to miss this. You want to be in on it. You don't want to be left out. All right, I'm going to skip the parable of the talents. We're going to go straight to the sheep and goats so we don't keep you here for too many hours. What must we do to be saved? Believe in Jesus. Oh, to believe in Him. If we believe in Him and we believe in the hell that He saved us from, suddenly our lifestyle gets changed that we want to watch for Him. We want to see what is He doing, when is He going to come back, and who is going to be with us at that party. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, I love how Jesus, in every one of these parables, he escalates a little bit. Like they've got the fearful parts and they've got the words of caution. But can you imagine how awesome that's going to be when Jesus comes in glory with all of his angels around him? He will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus says that in this parable. And you can almost hear him. And he's like, I cannot wait for this moment. I know this is coming. When I sit down on my glorious throne, because at this point he hasn't even been crucified yet. So he's looking through the cross at him, he himself sitting on his throne. Wow. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another, like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. All right, so read the little thing in there. Wait, wait, wait. Jesus says, the Last Supper, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And it's a fun joke for people to say, if he's been preparing, if he built the whole world in seven days, but he's been preparing a place for me in heaven since the Last Supper, what a great place I'm going to live. And that's cute and that's cool and that's fine. It says here, he's been preparing a place for me since before from the foundation of the world, you guys. Before fossils were new, God prepared a place for you to hang out with him. He says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And they go through that whole, what are you talking about? The righteous people don't even know what the Lord, they're so close to the Lord. They love the Lord. They follow him. And he says this and they don't even know what he's talking about. And he says, listen, when you did this to the least of one of my brothers, you did it to me. The least, the lowest, the most undeserving, the smelliest, the stupidest, the leastest. When you did it to the leastest of one of my brothers, 
I was there and you did that to me. Then he will say to those on his left, this is the scariest passage in scripture. Depart from me, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not just that they cease to exist. They don't just, and they they don't have a memory anymore. We're all eternal. We are all eternal. Their eternal is cursed and into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It was made to make angels and the devil suffer. How much more so is it going to be horrible for people? And then he says, here's why. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or sick and we didn't minister to you? So there's one way to read that that's obvious, right? The other way to read it is, every time I had a chance to do a church thing, I did it. When did we not see this thing and not do it? And it's when it didn't look like a thing, right? He will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of one of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. So again, you can't say there's no hell. That there is. And it's a really horrible, horrible thing. Now, do we turn this into a law? And by golly, every single dude I see with the cardboard sign that says, God bless, homeless, that I'm going to give him $20. No. Is that my... Might not be the best thing. And and Jesus didn't give us that law, right? But I'm going to look to Jesus. And I'm going to say, wow. Jesus, when you died for my sins, you did a lot. When Jesus died for my sins, he died for a lot of junk. A lot of stupid decisions that I made. A lot of stupid things that I've done. And he saved me from that eternal hell. And so now, here I am. And what what will I not do for him? Because I don't have to go to hell. I have eternal life. I have a constant relationship. I've been in some hopeless spots. I've been in some terrible things. Where I was like, this is terrible. And I always had hope that I would get out of it. Even if, even if I died, I had hope that that moment would be over at some point. Hell has no hope, and it does not end. And so anything that I get to go through that's not hell is great. <laughs> right? It's awesome. And so that makes me respond to Jesus. Jesus, I want to believe everything you said. I want to know more of what you said. I want to put that oxygen mask on myself so tight and so strong that I can breathe in your word 
and that other people will look at me and be like, dude, that dude is breathing fine. This airplane is crashing into the Atlantic Ocean and that guy is fine. Oh, he has a mask on. I want that mask. I want to put a mask on too, right? This will, Jesus said, he said to Nicodemus of all people, when the Son of Man is lifted up, all men will be drawn to him. And so as we, in faith in Jesus, are we doing works to get saved? Heck no. Are we trying to earn our way and make God like us? No, God loves you so much. But am I going to live for Jesus because he's worth it? And because he's worthy and he deserves it? Because gosh, what a mess he got me out of. Yes. And the more... We see how much He saved us from, the more we want to live for Him. And the more we want to run after Him. So, let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for giving us the gift of salvation. Thank You so much for doing for us what we would be absolutely and ridiculously hopeless to do for ourselves. And thank You, Lord, that we don't have to add anything to Your salvation. That your death on the cross, that your rising from the dead, that your sending of the Holy Spirit is enough to save us completely and help us to walk in righteousness and holiness. Lord, we thank you so much. We praise you and we exalt you and we pray that everybody that we run into that doesn't know this would grab onto it and come to faith in you. We praise you, Lord. Amen. Amen.